Coming up next, it's this, that, and the other. This, that, and the other. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Time has come today. Of the season. No time for the love you send. Time is on my side. Radio. Dirty Radio Classics. Hey, it's Greg D'Angelo, and you're listening to This, That, and The Other on Dirty Radio Classic. Holy cow. <laughs> this war song by White Lion, a band I used to be a part of. I feel like, I'd like to feel like I'll always be a part of it. But somebody that uh, actually tracked that track is my next guest, Greg D'Angelo. Now, I, I think I've spent more time uh, doing research on Greg. For I, I want to do a really good interview with him for some. I always want to do a good interview, but I am particularly. I want. I want to hit all the marks here. Now, a lot of past interviews have had. Well, why'd you leave with you know White Lion and? He kind of says, "Well, you know, it kind of, kind of reached its end. It ran its course." And I, and I, I watched a bunch of interviews that he did over the pandemic, and his his reasoning for leaving a lot of bands was that it ran its course. So when White Lion ran its course, he got into Zach Wilde's what would become Pride and Glory, and they spent three years doing that. And he left the week before they started recording the debut and only album. By Pride and Glory. Brian Tishy took his space. And he said that it had run its course. But to leave one platinum band, to go to another band, and then to leave it just before the re- I feel like there's something there. I'm going to see if we can find <laughs> what is happening under the rock. And uh, that brings us to our next guest, Greg D'Angelo. Uh, classic drummer, not the first guy. Certainly not the last guy, but we're going to talk to him about his thoughts on White Lion, and we're going to ring him up right now. Oh yeah, pretty stoked about this. I hope it, I hope it don't fuck it up. Hello? Hey, Mr. Greg D'Angelo, how are you? I'm good, how are you, buddy? Not bad, man. You are live and alive, uh, well, kind of, sort of, full disclosure, I typically don't do pre-records, but uh, I had to have you on the show. So we are pre-recording this the day before it will air, and you are on this, that, and the other radio show, Dirty Radio FM Channel Two, Dirty Radio Classics. And uh, hey, my name's Troy, and uh, I am not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm hanging in there, buddy. Right on, right on. So um, I appreciate you coming on the show and talking to me. I, you know, I've been, I, I think I've done more research on on you than any other guest. For some reason, I feel like I want to get it right. And, oh. you know, I have a lot of questions just about some things. Many, I'm sure you've answered before, but I, f- I feel like, you know, there's just a couple more answers that we haven't quite unraveled yet. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you'll at least entertain being entertained with me today. I will do. I will do my best. <laughs> By the way, I believe if my research is correct, and if I screw this right out of the gate, then we might as well just go. But I believe you have a birthday coming up uh, this week. Um, is it this week? Uh, well, uh, well, the eighteenth. 
It's it's the nineteenth, but uh, yeah, it is coming up, isn't it? All right. Well, uh, well, Wikipedia well, yeah. and the web, listen. The internet does lie, folks. His birthday will be December nineteenth, and uh, in advance, we wish you a happy birthday. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. So you know, we're probably going to go. Uh, sometimes we have to go backwards in order to kind of move forwards, and 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 we'll kind of jump around a little bit, and we'll just take it where the conversation goes. I have some bullet points and some things I want to talk about, but. You know, we're, we're not on a script here. We're here to have fun, just like rock and roll should be, right? Shouldn't always be a awesome. script. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I kind of want to go back to your history with uh, Anthrax. And Anthrax just released, I believe, a 40th anniversary, just a series of videos on YouTube. Were you, do you happen to know if you were a part of that or not? Because you definitely are part of their history. I am definitely a part of their history. I, I'm not aware of the videos that they released on YouTube. Um, there have been a couple of things floating around that we did early on, um, when we were 17 year olds or however old we were when we were in that band. And, um, I see them pop up from time to time on Facebook, but I'm really not aware of, uh, anything that's been officially released or anything like that. Gotcha. You know, I, I know it was a series of, uh, it was kind of a documentary and they did them in 10 to 15 minute clips. And uh, I unfortunately hadn't had chance to to run through all those because I, I don't know if they go in, in, in order from, you know, start to finish or if they kind of bounce around. But, uh, you know, being a part of that band that's still here today, you know, 40 years later, um, you know, you at some point you jump ship from there. Was there ever an opportunity to stay in the band? And do you think, and, and I hate saying the what if thing, but you ever look back and go, God, if I, you know, you get to that uh, pivot in the road, you know, the left or the right, you know, the crossroads, was it, were you at a crossroads moment where maybe there could be a chance that you could have been a bigger or longer member of Anthrax or were you destined to always go the direction that you did uh, once you left the band? Well, it was my option. I left. Um, and, um, you know, no regrets. Um, it worked out well for me in, in the long run. But um, it was just really a question of, of what I wanted to do at that point in my life. Um, I, you know, to, to be perfectly frank, I wanted to play with uh, better musicians. Um, and, you know, God bless Scott. He's a tenacious guy. And, and uh, he's really done an amazing body of work over the years with the band. And I, my hat's off to him. But, um, you know, it was tough playing with the bass player. Um, and uh, there was a band that was playing in New York at the time called Cities, um, who had a fantastic, fantastic guitar player um, named Steve Moranovich. And, um, you know, a great bass player and, and, and uh, singer. And, and uh, they were definitely better players. And I wanted my game. And um, I thought that, you know, and they asked me to join the band. Uh, and I just thought that uh, they were more in tune with what I wanted to do at the time. Anthrax had a lot of punk kind of um, influences, and that was never really my thing. I was really more uh, Led Zeppelin, Bad Company, uh, Deep Purple kind of uh, fan. Um, and uh, I kind of wanted to, you know, shoot off of that more than... Um, you know, the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or something like that. Um, so I opted to make the move and spent a year and a half playing with these and uh, became a better player, I believe, and uh, had the opportunity to woodshed. And, um, yeah, that ran its course and, uh, you know, and uh, no regrets. 
Is there anything that you, because right now you don't hear it, but the audience will be hearing uh, the hate demo from uh, 1982. And as I understand, you're on that, correct? Hate devil? No, no, it's called the hate demo. I guess it's a demo from Anthrax from 82. And I believe you're on it, if my research is correct. Yeah, it sound. I mean, I was in the band in 1982, so I most probably am on what, that demo. I there were I forgot the names of the tunes that were recorded out on Long Island, but I think there were about four or five songs that uh, were recorded, and I think one of them made it to vinyl as a B-side or something. Somebody told me once. I I haven't really paid much attention to it, honestly. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a long time ago. Do you know if uh, outside of that one hitting vinyl, if any of those other riffs? Yeah, I'm sure you'd have to go back and hear them and then try and compare them to, you know, any of the classics. But do you know if any of those made them out of those early 80s days, those kind of garage punk Rocky days uh, before I, they became I, the band they, they are now? I don't. <laughs> gotcha. Tell, yeah, me, tell me a little bit about Cities because I did come across, I don't know if you ever recorded with them, but uh, the almighty A.J. Perro, as I understand from Twisted Sister, had recorded with them. Did you, was he just a studio guy? Did you replace him or vice versa? AJ was in the band before I was in the band, and um, I think he left when he got the offer from Twisted. Um, they had somebody before me, I believe, and uh, brought me in, and then um, I left when AJ came back. Twisted had finished up, and uh, AJ wanted a seat back, so um, I left, and he came back and played. And I soon thereafter joined White Lion. Wow. So think about some of the guys that you're, you know, kind of, you know, cruising around as a teenager. And, you know, now, you know, to, I mean, AJ Perro, I mean, there's, there's some heavyweights out there. The The New York scene is not one that I'm familiar with because I, I came from the Midwest, uh, Chicago. And, you know, while we had Cheap Trick and stuff, that stuff was a little bit before my time. And then in the early 90s, I moved, you know, west. But again, I missed that big wave. I wasn't in, you know, one of those bands early on. So I sort of was just like in this limbo of, of I was the one watching you guys on MTV. And uh, the East Coast, going through your history and seeing some of the different people that you play with and, and the paths that you crossed, these are a lot, there's a lot of heavyweight dudes in the East Coast. The bar was really, really high. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and um, the uh, the bar scene uh, when I was coming up in the seventies was uh, was uh, very healthy. Um, everything changed when they changed the drinking age from eighteen to twenty one. Everything kind of died at that point. But um, I used to routinely go out and see uh, Bobby Rondinelli play in his band, uh, Joey Franco with the Good Rats, who uh, was really my my teacher. He was kind of my sensei. Um, uh, Twisted Sister uh, with their original drummer, Tony Petri, and then uh, Joey Markowski, who was also a great drummer from Long Island, and uh, eventually AJ, who was fabulous. Um, there was a band called Rat Race Choir. There, there were a, a ton of great bands uh, in and around the tri-state area. And, uh, you know, you, you go out on a Wednesday night and you go see Bobby Rondinelli play, or you go see Joey Franco play, and it's like, Shit, I really got to have my shit together to be able to do this the right way. Look at these guys. Yeah. You know, they were just fantastic drummers, you know? And uh, I think most of those guys learned from, from uh, Carmine Apice. Carmine, uh, I know he taught Joey, Markowski, he taught Franco, he taught Rondinelli. And um, 
so he's got uh, quite a lineage lineage uh, associated with his name. Uh, Wait, is it so? Is it Carmine Apice and Vinny Apice, or <laughs> what, what is up with those two guys with the two different names? <laughs> I don't know, man. They're both fabulous. They're, they're both fantastic players. I love them. What are the odds to have uh, two, you know, sons or you know, that are both fantastic drummers? I mean, what are yeah. the odds? Yeah. So uh, I, I found some other stuff on Jack's Jack Star's Burning Star and uh, Rock and Roll's The American Way. Is this an album that you recorded? Is this prior to White Lion or, or after or during? That, that was prior to White Lion, and that was really something that I was just hired to do. I was just hired to come in and play drums. I was never really in that band. Um, but I and uh, Bruno Ravel, who played bass on that, who was also in White Lion for a while, um, and Bruno's a uh, danger, danger bass player. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So that, you know, that was really just a session. It wasn't, um, th- there were never any live shows uh, associated with that lineup. It was kind of just, uh, you know, work for a week and go away. Yeah. Was that, was that a big thing? Cause as when I was a kid, I was in my band and our band was our band. We didn't play in other bands like now. Everybody's in 75 bands or they do a lot of sessions, especially with the technology and the pandemic forcing everybody to be in their houses and, and you know, like yourself, do, you know, doing a lot of tracking for other artists. But back in the day when I was, you know, cutting my teeth and breaking sticks, um, you know, I, I uh, didn't play in a lot of other bands. Were you kind of known as a session guy or did you just do a few here and there? Because that wasn't real familiar for me growing up. No, I wasn't really a session guy. It was just, um, it was more like, you know, Jack probably saw me play uh, at a gig with, with a, some band or something, or maybe I was hired to do a, a, a night with a top 40 band or something when I was a kid. I used to do that sometimes. Um, and um, he asked me to play. It was really as simple as that. And, you know, that was before White Lion, so there wasn't uh, the heavy commitment that um, we had when, uh, you know, when we were with... Uh, White Lion, but um, yeah, it was just you know, um, it wasn't something that I normally did. Uh, it's it was just kind of a one-off that happened to occur. Right on. When you were doing the top forty stuff, what, was it multiple sets a night, four or five hours a, a, a playing a night, or was it just you know headlining well, covers? Because that was a kind of a thing back in the day. A lot of these guys before their bands launched, they would talk about endless gigs that would you know start at eight and go until two a.m. Yeah, that's it, it was usually two or three sets a night and I started doing that stuff when I was 13 years old. Wow. Um and uh you know, it was just pocket money, you know. Yeah, the funny thing is is I'm I'm kind of doing that that stuff here in Vegas, you know, where I'm playing casinos, it's like 445s and I got to tell you uh it, uh it is still pocket money. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like, wait, how? Wait, we're getting what? Oh, we do get a case of the mini eight ounce waters too. Okay, I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah, yeah. So we answer an ad in the Village Voice, as I understand, to, to you know White Line, which is you know definitely your your pinnacle band, the band that you're uh, most well known for, and rightfully so. Uh, they had uh, one album already kind of in the can. Do you happen to know what happened with uh, the original drummer uh, Nicky uh, when he when he left? Do you happen to hear the story as to why he was out, Nikki uh, Capozzi? Well, from my conversations with Nikki, you know, the few that I've had over the years, and um, from what the guys told me, he just, um, he, there was some physical thing that was wrong where he had some some issue where he couldn't play, but, you know, everything starts to hurt when things aren't going right, and I guess things weren't going right for them at that point in their, in their career, and um, 
you know, they were kind of at a low point really when, uh, they were looking for a new drummer. They, uh, had got dropped by Electra. The record was shelved and, uh, they were trying to figure out what the next move was. And they, you know, and it was, everybody was probably a little bit bummed out and, uh, they needed some new blood. I'm sure that had something to do with it. So out of all the people that they auditioned, and I think Bruno Ravel, again, uh, his name comes up where he, you know, sort of helped make the connection as well. Um, what what do you think allowed you to stand out to be the guy that got the gig versus the other dozens or more that uh, auditioned? Well, when I joined the band, Dave Spitz was playing bass. Um, Bruno came in uh, after Dave left. I brought Bruno in. Um, but... Um, I think I was one of the last guys that they saw from what uh, the management uh, had told me at the time. Um, and I purposely went into that uh, gig. I listened to the songs and, you know, I'd seen the band uh, play before and I, I really thought Mike was a star. And um, they were really, you know, they weren't really like a heavy metal band. They were really more... Um, how do, I, how do I describe it? There, you know, you, well, you know Mike's influences. It was like Thin Lizzy and, sure. and Queen. And when you listen to that first record, you hear a lot of those influences. And I was like, wow, this is great. It's got a little bit of, bit of that progressive tip and get to play a little bit more and we'll do this thing. And when I went down, they were like, we want to do stuff that's a little bit more accessible. We want to be, you know, and they talked about the Dawkins record, the Tooth and Nail record. And... Um, you know, and there was obviously a big Van Halen influence, but it was really about the song and the chorus, not overplaying, um, playing for the song and all that kind of stuff. So we, you know, I had to do a, a really quick mental adjustment and say, okay, this is really more like, uh, you know, like, like a rock, like a straight ahead rock slash, you know, and I, you know, I hate to say it to a certain degree, but a little bit of a pop gig where, you know, it's got these, these major choruses and everything's kind of happy. And, uh, and, uh, you know, you need to play to those songs with some cool fills here and there. So I had to kind of adjust what I was doing. So I underplayed, you know, a lot. Yeah. And I had heard in some other interviews that I was, you know, checking out, uh, some of the recording process and we, and we won't belabor all those other questions again, but, um, that, you know, big thing that stood out to me, uh, is that, your for you to go in and and put down a great drum track was to know what the vocal was doing and you you didn't always have that luxury but wasn't the the second or, or the last album uh when you guys were rehearsing the songs it was pretty much just the music and you didn't have the vocal melody there yeah i um actually the last two records both big game and um and main attraction we didn't really know what uh mike mike's plans were uh the three of us had gotten together and started rehearsing by ourselves for Big Game uh, in Brooklyn, and then came out and, uh, you know, we, we uh, recorded demos of all the beds, and um, then Tramp sang over the, over them, and I said, oh, that's what you're going to do. Well, let me, let me change this thing a little bit here, let me change that there, you know, to complement uh, what he was uh, doing. Why do you think that process changed from Pride, where you guys were, you know, doing a lot of pre-production and and it was a band effort, 
um, versus the last two albums, where the second and third, where um, you know m- maybe Mike wasn't there and you, it was just the three of you guys doing that, and and also um, tie in the the songwriting process. Was it Vito would uh, write a riff or somebody else in the band would write a riff? You guys would would shed it and then Mike would come in and, and find a, a melody over it because it seems like you guys changed from the the process of the Pride album to the other two. Yeah, that's pretty much how it went. Vito would uh, come down with a riff. And, uh, well, to answer the first part of your question, we were able to to do that on on the Pride record for two years because we had absolutely no distractions. All the four of us ever did was concentrate on trying to be the best band we could be. Um, You know, girlfriends were honestly secondary. Everything was secondary to the band. We used to go down to rehearsal every day, every other day, and just woodshed these songs for two years. So when we went to record them, you know, there was no question we were ready. The big game record, we had two weeks. Wow. We came off the, we, we came off the road. Vito had put together uh, some riffs that he had strung together, and uh, uh, myself and James went flew out to Brooklyn because we were living in, Ca- in California at that time, and... and uh, you know, spent a couple of weeks in a rehearsal studio just getting down these rudimentary arrangements. And then uh, I guess Mike uh, took those recordings and uh, wrote on top of those and uh, came out to L.A. And, and honed it a little bit more. But it was a much, much shorter process. You know, I, I guess in a way, though, it makes sense because, you know, at this point you're in the band. The band's kind of revamping itself with a new um, rhythm section and and securing a new deal and until you know the album gets done and it comes out then once it's out there and it hits it's like okay where's the next product we need it ASAP so and, and in addition to that you you guys are touring on it so you're not necessarily just locked in a room rehearsing does that make yeah, does that it, sound about right it, well it does sound about right and really the uh Override, overriding issue was the label wanted to build on the momentum that we had coming out of um, the Pride record and specifically the success of When the Children Cry. Um, that song did very well and uh, they were like, we need to get something out as quick as we can, as quick as we can. And we just weren't geared for that. You know, um, we didn't really have enough of a heads up to uh, do what they wanted us to do. You know, something interesting about uh, that song being such a big song, there, there was an era where, you know, bands like Mr. Big, Saigon Kick, Extreme, White Lion had these massive hits with really no drums in them. However, the touche point was Radar Love, where you actually had, and there, there there's a lot of, uh, you know, I was looking up like, you know, what, especially from that era, there are none. I did find some songs that uh, sort of purport to have, you know, like Moby Dick, for example, Tom Sawyer, you know, but, the, you know, Ram Jam by, you know, Black Betty, I should say the song, uh in the air tonight, but th- I don't think that I, I feel like radar love. And I'm trying to go through from especially that era and of all your peers. And I think that song is one, one and only. And then before I brought you on, we also did war song again, another song where you got to unload at the end of that. And, uh, that was a little kind of uncharacteristic of those bands from that era. How did, let's talk about Radar Love. How did that happen where you were able to go in there and, and actually do, you know, your own sort of solo? Um, yeah, interestingly, um, I had planned on doing something a little bit closer to what the guy in Golden Earring did. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, we were doing the first couple of passes and um, the producer took me aside, Mike Wagner, and he said, look, you, sh- you know, you got a lot more to offer than, than uh, you know, what's going on on that original track. With all due respect to that drummer, you know, you're your own guy. I've, I've heard you do this and that. Why don't you put something together and, and do your own thing? So that's what I did. And that came together pretty quick, um, heavily influenced by, uh, again, my, uh, my teacher, Joey Franco. You know, that's, that's kind of like a, a lot of what I learned from him and um, put together that middle section. And, uh, yeah, it worked. It, uh, you know, I, I still get a lot of questions about that to this day. And, uh, uh, you know, it was number one on MTV. It's something that I'm really proud of. And, uh, hey, could be worse, right? <laughs> exactly. So you met, you mentioned uh, Joe Franco. Were there any others like today? You know, I'm not a drum solo guy. Never have been. And uh, you know, but if there's ever something that I, I want to work on or something, I'll go and look and see what some of the other guys are doing. And you know, everything is always interpreted different. Drummers, you can get ten drummers to play back in black, and they'll play them ten different ways, even though they're playing the same groove. Every everybody, and that's the one thing I really love about drummers is even if somebody's up and coming. I'll go see, you know, young kids opening up and, you know, they're, they're just figuring out their instruments, figuring out how to play together. But I, one thing I always notice about our drummers, there's one thing that they do and that's their thing. They may not even know it yet. And I watch, and I go, Oh, that's, that's that dude's lick right there. That's his thing. Um, were, were there other people other than Joe that, you know, you took from to influence and then just kind of made it your own? Or did you just go up there and just kind of, you know, haul balls on, on, on the toms? I mean, cause it, it sounds just like explosive and it sounds you know spontaneous but it also sounds like it it was thought out because it transitions into the parts and then exits out the song it was thought out i mean the the three parts um of that solo um i guess were executed w- with a, a lot of excitement but um the three parts were all i, I knew what, what parts i was going to do it wasn't. It was. It wasn't just happenstance. I thought. You know. I planned it out and I experimented with it before we recorded it. But um, um, did I answer your question? Yeah. No. I think. You, I think <laughs> yeah. you did. I was just curious to see. You know, really how crafted it was versus how spontaneous it was. Yeah. No. What, it wasn't. It wasn't really spontaneous. I. I had worked on it. But uh, what? What about in a live setting? Did you guys ever? Because you know, I, I've had talks with with Mike, and uh, you know, when it came to that part, I obviously listened to what you did, and I said, "Well, that, that's that's his thing. That's <laughs> Greg's thing." Number one, I can't do it. And number two, if I could, I wouldn't. You know, so I went back to that more traditional thing. Boom, ba doom, ba da doom, ba da da doom. Yeah, I went back to that, and you know, and that was safer and more effective, and also, you know, in a live setting. Um, you know, there were signature parts where you knew that after this one thing that happens every time in every show, we're coming back into the very ending. So did you guys ever have any train wrecks doing your thing where, you know, the guitar player or the bass player may have jumped the gun a little bit, not sure that you were done with your part? I don't think so. I don't recall having any issue with that. As a three-piece, we were really tight. Um, uh, the three of us played well together, I, I always thought. And... Uh, there were never really any train wrecks uh, amongst the three of us. You know, there were clams. <laughs> you know, everybody clammed once in a while, but, uh, you know, nothing that really uh, threw the show off. You guys did a lot of uh, fun tours and uh, a lot of bands, ACDC, Ace Fraley, uh, Ozzy, Cinderella, Striper, Kiss. I mean, 
tons of bands. Any any stories, any pranks that you guys did? I did hear of one prank, but I, I want to see if if you happen to know about it, and maybe you can give me the 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 real skinny on it if it if it really happened. Oh, which one? <laughs> it, it would be Striper related to Robert Sweet. Is there any story there? Anything about? Well, I, I don't want to interrupt you if you have the story. Um, the one thing I remember about Striper is us throwing forums out <laughs> to the crowd in the middle of our show, which was kind of, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. Cause I think those guys used to throw out the, the, Bible the Bibles yeah. like that. and we were just being wise asses. So we bought a bunch of forum magazines and threw them out during our show, which would be an adult magazine back in the day. Um, right, I right. had heard a story from Mr. Tramp that, uh, you know, Robert had this this drum kit where he would come from, uh, you know, stairs above. He would and he would come down like a fireman. And he told me one day they lubed the pole. <laughs> Apparently, he slid down pretty fast and kind of bit it. it you remember hearing that or seeing that? Uh, that doesn't ring a bell. But. Huh. <laughs> Maybe he got creative with the story because it sounds like a like a plausible story, but it also sounds like you know it could have been a broken hip situation. Oh yeah, he had like like a like a fireman's pole or a stripper yes. pole, like that. yeah. I, I seem to remember that, but I don't remember. Uh, no, I don't remember that. I don't yeah, remember that one because back in the day, it was it was uh, you know pretty commonplace for especially headliners to kind of haze the openers and. You know, whether it was throughout the tour or at the beginning or on the last show, did you guys ever get hazed by any of the heavyweights like Kiss or Ozzy or ACDC? Any any practical jokes or anything? Um, not so much. We were, you know, we were kind of close with Aerosmith's crew when we toured with Aerosmith. And uh, some of the security guys came out and marched across our stage when uh, we, were, we were finishing our set. But um, we... Um, we have some. Uh, we had a, a great thing we did uh, with Aerosmith uh, the last night of the show in Phoenix, where we uh, during permanent vacation we came out with uh, lawn chairs and loungers and put on our bathing suits ah. and just kind of <laughs> vacationed on stage while they played. That was fun. Right on. You know, it seems like uh, this day and age, a lot of that stuff just doesn't happen anymore. Maybe, or maybe we don't see it. But uh, I feel like you know, rock and roll used to be so much more fun back then. You know, because it was uh, it was kind of an interesting club to be a part of, especially when you guys are out there playing arenas with the likes of an Aerosmith or an Ozzy and stuff like that. Um, Let's talk about as we kind of you know fade into album two and album three. um, What's the 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 climate? musically and do you think that that had any part of what ultimately would be your exit from from white lion you and james uh seemingly left at the same time but was it because uh was the band not not happening business-wise and let it be known that a lot of bands weren't happening business because there was kind of a new wave of music and and do you think that that had any effect on your decision to leave uh yeah the business is why is why we left um that that was really the uh, overriding issue. Um, it, you know, we just had differences and uh, we couldn't figure it out. I think the band actually could have lasted um, even through the hard times if uh, if we would have uh, had a little bit more uh, uh, skill and we had a little bit more direction um, from our grown-up managers. Um, but. Uh, Fortunately, it, it didn't go that way, and um, you know we had the opportunity to play with Zach Wild to start a band with Zach Wild. So uh, 
James and I pulled out and uh, figured we would do that. Yeah, so you guys were were touring at some point, you know, years before the exit or a couple years before the exit. And how did that come about? Were you guys just jamming during sound checks, or what? What what prompted the idea to go? Hey, let's let's start kind of a little three piece jam thing. You know, we just uh, clicked it off uh, personally. Uh, we you know we were good friends. We always had a good time together. Um, and after the show, really more than sound checks or anything like that, we would go out to uh, local bars and we would just commandeer the band's uh, instruments and we would just and we would just jam all night. And uh, you know, Zach was a big fan of that. He loved to jam, and uh, James and I uh, were of the same mind. And um, you know, that's really where it, what it grew out of. Were you guys doing a lot of um, kind of southern rock? Because th- th- that band sort of started off as Leonard Skinhead, correct? That's right. Yeah, we were doing a lot of Southern rock. Uh, we're doing a lot of Almond Brothers, a lot of Skinnerd, um, Mountain. You know, just heavy three-piece riff kind of stuff. How did it turn from a jam band? You know, after gigs at the local bar to what would ultimately become Pride and Glory. Sans you, though. How did that? You know, like, hey, let's did did Zach have some original music, or was that something that you guys were kind of working on together? <laughs> Yeah, we were working on music for years, um, you know, coming up with uh, riffs for years and uh, had, you know, the first iteration of that band really sounded a hell of a lot more like uh, a southern rock band. When uh, it became Pride and Glory, it, it uh, went a little bit heavier. I mean, there's there's a couple of tunes on that record that I think um, were from the old days, um, the older days, I should say. Um and obviously, he's gone in a completely different direction. Now. Sure, sure. Yeah, I found a couple tunes. Um, there was uh, Farm Fiddlin', and then I found uh, it was Baby. I got to hear somewhere in my notes. Uh, Baby, please don't Baby, go. Baby, please okay. don't go. Which to me sounded a lot like, you know, I, I just heard a snippet of the groove, and it's playing underneath uh, our conversation right now. But uh, it sounded a lot like, I was like, oh, this is kind of like that Radar Love kind of vibe there. Is that is that yeah. pretty close? Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was. And I think both of those songs were um, um, kind of a promoted by Mike Varney, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe one was Guitar World and one was Mike Varney, I forget. But they were both on compilation records. Uh, for guitar players and uh, Farm Fiddlin' was um, really just a jam that Zach had and we went into uh, Sound City and recorded that and I think Baby Please Don't Go was the same was it the same record? It might they might have been on the same record. I'm not sure. Yeah, I saw it on a different uh, on a on a different compilation. It was uh, I don't recall what it was off the top of my head, but yeah, I, I, I believe it was two different compilations when I was uh, doing some research. Is that the only stuff that you recorded with uh, Zach and uh, J Lo in that in that setup, that configuration? Oh no, I have the whole. We did the whole Pride and Glory record. I I left a week before that record was recorded. So, so you guys, so you demoed it, but you didn't track the album that's out to the, the one that would be, was released in 94. That's Brian Tishy on there, right? Correct. Gotcha. So, so you kind of, you know, I, I see how I'm trying to tie this together where the business of White Lion isn't really favoring you guys. Um, did the dynamic ever change from a band vibe to where you guys felt like you guys were high, more hired guys or, because I mean, obviously, you know, when you're the primary songwriters, you know, the, the gigs are only paying so much and then the publishing pays the publishers, right? People getting that. And if you're left out of that, then your lifestyle is a little different. Is that part of, uh, that dynamic that went a little South? 
Well, no, we were all partners in the band. We were all partners in the corporation. Um, um, so it's kind of a, a little bit of both. Um, you know, we had issue with how the deals were structured. And, yeah, you know, and the disparity in income uh, for seemingly the great amount of work that we were doing together uh, was also an issue. So it was cumulative, you know. Yeah, you know, I think – for example, you know, and we're just using, the guitar player comes in with the riff. The singer is like, oh, I got a melody. I'm going to sing it. So, you know, that that's your song, right? Well, that's what most people think. For me, being kind of in, in the same boat as you, same pair of shoes as you, is like, yeah, but there's also a drum beat, which I get is, you know, if the drummer knows what he's doing, he's going to dictate what his pattern's going to be to complement the guitar and complement the vocal and the bass is going to lay down a rhythm which again is going to be in whatever key that the guitar player wrote the song in but he's going to add his bottom end to kind of glue it all together was it sort of where it didn't because i've been in this situation where it's like well i wrote the song and i i sang the lyrics and it's like well what were we doing here chop liver we didn't just have our dicks in our hands we were all kind of part of this and and i've had ideas in the past where you go hey what if we went to this spot here and we did a modulation or whatever you know and then the credits come out and you, you don't see your name there did you have you experienced not only in, in white line but in other endeavors that you've done sure i've experienced stuff like that but it really comes down to you know what? What do you want? Do you want to be in a band? Then you know if you're gonna if you're gonna take the lead role, you you also have to take the role of responsibility to make sure it's fair for everybody and that everybody's happy. That's really what it comes down to. Um, it's not just about uh, you know taking the dough and running. You really need to uh, be a leader and uh, maintain that stability. It's yeah. it's a responsibility. No, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in the case of White Lion, you guys left and uh, it seemed like the, the band would, would not last beyond their uh, American tour, which was, I, I don't know, less than a year, maybe even a few months with uh, Jimmy DeGrasso. I, and I was kind of looking, I was like, oh, we got a D'Angelo and a DeGrasso in the band. <laughs> so Lots of Italians in, lots the, uh, of Ita in, right? the, in the drumming world, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> You know, so I don't know. It's kind of interesting to see what what do you think, or what's your opinion on the demise after you guys left? Do you think that was just a victim of circumstance with the the music uh, sort of climate changing, or w was that just going to ultimately be doomed potentially anyway? Whether you guys stuck it out and then eventually became unhappy and made the U.S. tour finish, and then that was it, or that two other guys came in and just didn't, you know, it just didn't go beyond the end of that tour. No, I think I think uh, you know Jimmy's a fine drummer, and um, and uh, you know and Tommy as well. Tommy Caradona was a, a fine bass player, a friend of mine. Um, it's really all about uh, how important it is to for you to keep it together. You know, I, I mean, it, it sounds kind of um, childish to, to talk about a brotherhood or something like that, but you need to have elements of those ideals um, in any business that you do. I think. You know, if you're not treating somebody fairly, they're going to split. They're going to look for greener pastures. If they're smart, they're going to want to take care of themselves and their families and their future. You know, I mean, it's it's a real it's a real long conversation, and it's not just about the music business. It's about it's about any business. You know, you need to treat people fairly. Um, and I'm not, you know, saying that you know I blame those Mike and Vito or anything like that. It's got nothing to do with that with, with that at all. I sure. think uh, it's really more about. Um, the people that were managing us um, 
kind of uh, taking on that role and saying, hey, look, guys, if you really want this to be, you know, something that goes on to be a journey or a band like that, then this is what you need to do. You know, uh, if you want it to last and it's important to you, then this is what you need to do. If you don't, then you do this. And I think, um, you know, maybe infighting uh, exclusive of myself or, or James, you know, there were just a lot of things that weren't being handled right, uh, to, you know, in the business. And um, it just kind of overwhelmed, it just kind of engulfed, uh, you know, the band unfortunately. And, uh, I would have loved to see the band continue, you know, um, I would have loved to see the band continue with, uh, James and myself. You know, I think that, uh, like I said before, I think we could have wrote out any, um, any, uh, stylistic changes that, uh, you know, uh, the world was going through at that point and, uh, we could have survived in Europe, could have survived out of Japan. There's a lot of things you could do to, uh, go into business. You just don't have to do business in the United States. Absolutely. So the Greener Pastures at that point in time would be the Zach Wild, and we did talk a little bit about that. Uh, you and James Lomenzo uh, to what would be a pride and glory. So how do you go all the way to the Greener Pastures? I mean, you're almost to the to the to the goal line there, and you leave the band inadvertently like a week before you guys were set to record that debut uh, self titled album, Pride and Glory. How, how does that happen? Similar issues. Same issues, gotcha. Were you guys uh, all sort of uh, getting together when you guys are working on songs? Is it, was it collaborative or was it all of Zach's stuff? And you know, or, or just the same scenario where you know the drummer sort of and the bass player possibly just gets kind of you know excluded from the fun stuff. Yeah, similar issues. <laughs> gotcha, 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 gotcha. Do you do you uh, have any relationship with? I I'm, I take it you and uh, James and. Uh, uh, Tramp and Vito, do you guys still communicate occasionally or send pleasantries? We all send pleasantries uh, to each other directly or indirectly, I think. Um, you know, I speak to Tramp every once in a while and I speak to Vito every once in a while. I haven't really spoken to James too much. Mm. Um, mm. But, um, you know, I there's no hard feelings, at least on my end, and I don't think on anybody else's end. Um, you know, we, it ran its course and... Um, you know, um, there's always a, a big part of me that's always going to love those guys, and I always wish them the best. And, um, you know, it is what it is. It's just the, the course that life took. Yeah, you know, I, I've been in situations where I've, I've left on bad terms, and uh, after the pain, the stinging goes away a little bit. You just go, this, this was destined to end up this way because of these personalities or these conceptions or whatever. And while I was there, it was great. And then it was great until it wasn't. And, you know, th those things kind of happen. But, you know, I hope that after, you know, especially in this case, decades go by, everybody's like, hey, th this is all who we were back then. And would we have all chosen to do things a little differently? I, I think the answer probably on everybody's, I'm not going to speak for anybody, but typically is like, yeah, yeah, we didn't really handle that right. Or we let somebody else mishandle that. And, and I feel like that's the case here. Um, I, kn I know that based on prior interviews that you did, and I know that you did a bunch during the pandemic. Did you, uh, any ideas as to what Mr. Brada is up to? And, uh, you know, I know he's always taking care of his family, and that's been something he's been doing since uh, he kind of left the spotlight of White Lion. Anything new on the horizon that you've heard of that uh, you might be able to disclose? Uh, as far as Vito goes? Mm -hmm. No. Um, as far as I know, he's, um, you know, still at home taking care of his family. Um, last I saw, saw him, he was in good health and good spirits, and... Uh, 
you know, we had a really nice visit, um, but um, there was no great urgency to uh, come come out and play or do anything like that that uh, he related to me. So. Um, that's really a question for him. Yeah, sure. Let me ask you this. So, uh, you know, I was a part of the Tramps White Line, and I know in other interviews, and uh, I, I take a little umbrage with this statement, but, uh, you know, that Tramps White Lion, which at some point did tour as White Lion with the glorious logo, um, you know, that the guys that were not you or James or Vito were, were considered scabs. And I, I want to hear how you think about that, because kind of well my question is for you is well you know you weren't the original drummer so does that make you a scab and did you was there like somebody says well i want 150 bucks a gig and you came and undercut and said well i'll do it for 100 that to me would be kind of a scab i feel like when somebody uh leaves because whether it's health they they've lost interest it's run its course uh you know greener pastures whatever it is what are your thoughts on the fact that mike why uh, mike <laughs> mike tramp took out a bunch of guys, a.k.a. scabs, and uh, went out there and performed as White Lion. I mean, what were your thoughts? Did you ever see any of the videos? Did you hear any of the al- the, the one album, the studio album that was done by that lineup? And, and what are your thoughts on it? Um, I think scab is a little extreme. I don't think, um, I mean, geez, you could call every band out there today a scab. Well, that's, no. yeah, of course, right? <laughs> you know, if that were the case, and there's no original members and, you know, and we all know, uh, you know, bands that have like one or no members playing with them. But uh, it's really about the songs. People want to hear those songs. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think uh, I think if you're going to do something like that and, you know, whoever was in the uh, the, the lineup of the band that, that uh, had the success has got somewhat of an obligation to kind of, you know, include the other guys and say, hey, listen, this is what I want to do, whether it's financial or not isn't the issue. It's really more about, Hey guys, you know, here's my plan. I just want to kind of plug you in, but, um, I don't know, I guess it's really, I guess it comes down to ownership and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's such a short life, man. You know, (laughs) I don't see what the problem is with going out and making people happy, letting them hear the songs that they want to hear. It's, uh, you know, it's such a, it's a ever shrinking community you know, of uh, people going to see this kind of music. And um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, uh, let's just go out and have some fun. You know, let's uh, make sure everybody is treated fairly and uh, go out and play. But um, I, I don't think, you know, if, if there's one guy, a guitar player, bass player, drummer, whoever, who doesn't want to do it, there's somebody that would be happy to, to fill that seat, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right on, right on. Did you happen to see any of the uh, the videos? Did you did you shake your head, going, "Dude, what do you, what do you do? That's not the drum pattern. Come on, dude. It's on the album. It's there. I've already done the part for you. You just have to listen." <laughs> no, it was kind of funny. In fact, right before I got on with you, I, I clicked on the link that you sent me, yeah. and uh, it was kind of the band sounds really good, man. I was really like, I'd never seen it before, and I was just like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Um, and you know, Tramp looks good. That guitar player really had you know Vito down. Um, and, uh, you played great and, uh, the band sounded really good. I was, uh, smiling while I was watching it. I, I appreciate hearing that. Cause, uh, you know, while it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know, off, often duplicated, never replicate or often whatever. I, I definitely played, uh, paid all the utmost respect to you and your performance and the songs, you know, the best I could. There were there were changes in different parts where, you know, Mike wanted to make some different changes. But, you know, I always tried to, you know, play the right patterns and the 
and you know and then kind of as a band you start kind of figuring out your own things together and things evolve a little bit which you know I was like when I see another band out there and they've got maybe one OG guy or a couple different guys and even when you're seeing the full band like you know whatever uh, I'm trying to think of a band out there that has everybody in it uh, and there aren't very many but well let's say like Warrant for example although they have a different singer the musicians in the band and even they will take some liberties with the songs that they all you know had a part of because you know maybe they get bored or they're like oh we should have done this or you know and uh, and that was kind of the approach that we had to it was hey let's pay all the respect to the way these songs were recorded and anything organically sort of happens you know like hey let's extend this part a little bit or let's do a stop here you know those parts developed and I'm sure you guys did that too as well your live versions were probably different than your tracked versions yeah, there were, little, there were little differences here and there, and, um, you know, I can't remember one of them, to be honest with you at this <laughs> point, but uh, but uh, if I listen to the tapes, I'm sure it says, oh, yeah, we used to do that like that. You know you know how it is. You uh, start playing a bunch of other songs, and you forget uh, the other stuff. It comes back as muscle memory yeah. if, you get back in, if you get back into it. When's the last time you played a White Lion song? Um, oh, excuse me a second. Sorry, let me get rid of this. Sorry about that. Vito. Vito's calling. <laughs> it's Vito Brado. Let me turn Let's it Get on. him on the phone. Um, yeah. Um, well, I play uh, Radar Love with my um, Legends of Classic Rock Band. Um, and uh, so I've been playing that song pretty steadily over the past few years. Um, do you still do the but, bang out solo in that song? Yeah. Has it evolved or, or changed or simplified? Or is that are you kind of doing the album version? Uh, I do the album version, depending on the night, I might extend it sometimes, oh, and, I just, and, and I just kind of click it in for the uh, for the guys that are playing with me. Right on. And that's a band that you started a few years ago, but uh, you know got sidelined by uh, a pandemic, and when I did some research on that band, you guys did 60 dates this past year. That's right. Holy shit. Yeah, we were all over the world. It was a great year. Wow. So tell me about the legends of, of classic rock. You've got, uh, I know, Chuck Wright in there, Terry Lewis from XYZ, former Great White, and uh, you got a couple other guitar players and uh, keyboard player. Who else is in that band? Yeah, Terry Lewis is my partner. Him and I started the band, and um, we have uh, Kevin Jones from Ozzy Osbourne's band playing keyboards. Um, Chuck Wright is playing bass, and we have Jason Boylson from uh, Bad Company uh, and Starship playing guitar. Right on. And you guys are out there doing uh, – because you guys look like you did a lot of overseas dates, not a, lot of, a, not a lot of U.S. We did. Yeah, we did a lot of overseas dates. Great majority of were overseas. And uh, we have a great time, man. It's Everybody likes each other. We're all you know laughing like idiots and, and playing the same set that I played when I was 17 years old, ironically. Wow. You know? um, so <laughs> all the songs that you uh, – that you played in your first garage band. It all comes full circle. But now you're playing with the guys that had something to do with it. That's super cool. You must be reading my notes, by the way, because the transition into Legends was kind of like where we were at because we you know, we covered all the bases and, and all that good stuff. Uh, I know that you had a little stint with uh, Rough Riot, and I think, from what I understand, you did a couple gigs and a pandemic again sidelined that. And uh, did, did you ever get back with them? Because I, I noticed I think they got a different drummer that was uh, the original guy from Rough Cut or something. What happened with that? Um, they sep- that band kind of split into two. You're talking about Shorty and Carlos and those guys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, Paul Shortino. Um, they um they had a band uh, with two of the guys from Quiet Riot and two of the guys from or three of the guys from Rough Cut, 
and and they dissolved into two bands. And um, Sean McNabb uh, asked me to come down and play with uh, Carlos and Paul. And we did two gigs, and the pandemic hit, and it kind of dissolved. Everybody kind of went their own way. Sean played uh, with the Legends for uh, a while, and um, great bass player, um, and uh, you know, and a good friend, and. Um, yeah, it's just like it's the pandemic kind of screwed the pooch for a lot of different things, huh? Yeah, and it seems like when it comes back together a year later, you know, people's heads are maybe in different uh, spaces. They've made different relationships or different ideas as to what to do. Um, you got some experience with uh, Rats. Jimmy DeGrasso had something to do with Rat, and also in White Line, you yourself has played with Stephen Piercy solo. Also tracked the uh, Smash album. And uh, man, I, so I went through the Smash album. I was like, well, you know, I know there's a video song to play, but I dug what you did in Lollipop. So that's the one that we're playing on the show today. Um, okay. You know, uh, tell me about playing with, with Piercy. I know that uh, you guys were kind of neighbors and you came across them and it was like a hey ho and let's go. And now you're jamming and recording an album with them. Uh, when's the last time you played with uh, Piercy? Boy, it's been a few years since I've, since I've played with Steven. Um... But yeah, you kind of nailed it. That's what happened. I was walking to get my mail, and uh, he was out watering his roses. And, uh, <laughs> and hang on, and- a se- wait, hang on. We ha- Greg, we have to pause for a second. I'm all right. So Piercy's <laughs> out there. He's got his microphone. It's like the brass knuckle microphone in one hand, right? And then he's got a, a fucking thing full of water in the other hand. There's the visual. Maybe he's wearing short shorts. I don't know. That's just my visual, not yours. But And he's watering roses, and you're out there getting your mail going, hey, what's up, dude? And so, wow. All right. Keep going. Sorry. Well, yeah, that was pretty much that's a pretty good idea. You should tell him to build like a, uh, a, a knuckle hose bib or something. Dude. Thing or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was just walking to get my mail, and we started chatting, and he says, hey, you want to come play? And I said, sure. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, I was with him for a while. I forgot, good five, six, seven years. I don't even remember. Yeah, you know, and I know in his band, I know uh, Eric, uh, Eric, I'll call him F, so I don't ruin his last name, but, uh, you know, I that band, you know, it's a solo band, and he's got, Eric's been with them for, forever, and, and, you know, the other guys sometimes change in and out, depending on what's going on. How'd you find your way out of there? Is it because you were doing Legends, or was there a conversation about it, or how, how'd that work out? Because I think Scott Coogan's back with, with uh, Piercy, as I understand. Right, right. Um, it just ran its course, you know, it was just time to do something else, you know? That happens sometimes. And uh, you guys are on good footing, though? Yeah, sure. Ever uh, think about, or was there ever a discussion to, uh, when when they got back together briefly without Bobby Blotzer, that maybe you would be a part of, maybe D'Angelo would replace DeGrasso in that, or, or did that not come up? Uh, that Yeah, that was part of a conversation for, for a while there. And, Interesting. Um, they just couldn't get, uh, they just couldn't, you know, between Steven and Warren and uh, Juan, they just couldn't see eye to eye, you know, uh, all three of them together at any one time, which is a shame because what a great body of work and what a, what a talented bunch of guys and, you know, they really should be out there playing. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, you know. Uh, you know, they got a big box set coming out next year. And, uh, oh, good. 
And uh, it would be a shame if they couldn't do because I mean you think about that band and the amount of hits that they had and how unique Rat was. You know, I think Rat was a very unique band. Uh, you know, to the Bon Jovi's and the Poisons, just like White Lion was. White Lion was very melodic, very progressive, had some heavy tunes and and very musical, very instrument uh, instrumentation going on. It wasn't a lot of just power chords. There's a lot going on in those songs and a lot of nuances. And I feel like the rat and the white lions of, of the day kind of stood out a little bit in a different way, even if they didn't have the same success as a, as like a Bon Jovi or, you know, maybe a Cinderella or something. But uh, yeah, I agree. I think they need to all, you, you know, go to their respective corners. Uh, yeah. I talk to Blotzer occasionally and I'm like, Who's the one guy, because you talk about management and maybe the failure of management highly contributing to the demise of White Lion. Who's the management that could come in, smack these guys in the face and go, listen, you know, let's get it together. There's a reason. There's a purpose to do this. It's a shame to not do it. And, uh, you know, who's the guy that used to manage Zeppelin? Maybe the guy with the baseball bat needs to come in. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the problem is, is, you know, you get get into your 50s and 60s. And uh, that kind of stuff doesn't work as, as well as it might as in your twenties and thirties. Yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> you know, Everybody's um, stubborn in their in their ways. And everybody get you know everybody kind of calms down a little bit and just says, "What's the number?" You know what? You know you want a gig? Okay, what's the number? Well, they got offered a six figure gig here in Vegas that I, <laughs> quarter of a mil, and they turned it. They couldn't get it together for that. I don't know. I don't think they're really? going to get offered well, any more money than that. But uh, that could that that maybe that's just my rumor. But I've I've heard it from a reliable source. But uh, that's too bad. Let's uh, wrap up then with you uh, and kind of button it up. So we're doing the uh, Legends of Classic Rock, right? Is that is that correct? L O C R B A N D dot com. That's where you find us. We'll update what we're doing. Please come out and see us. Right on. Uh, are you doing any more? Because I know for a while you were doing studio stuff. You got rid of your studio stuff some years ago. Are you doing any more tracking, engineering, any behind-the-scenes stuff? Or where are you at right now these days? You're just playing drums? I record, mix, um, track for people. I don't have the big uh, 2SSL and a Neve room anymore. I, I sold all that stuff about 20 years ago, but kept enough of my... Uh, Vintage Pultex and Neves and all that kind of stuff to uh, record good drums and, and uh, mix, but uh, it's on a smaller scale, and uh, it's really all I need these days to do what I do. Any uh, any platinum or gold uh, albums in the house from the White Line days? Yeah, they're all in my bathroom. Excellent. <laughs> you spend a lot of time. You, do you, you know, not to get weird or anything, but, you know, going down there, sitting there doing business, you ever look up and go, God damn it, that's fucking cool. Yeah, that's why it kind of gives me a minute to look at him every now and again, you know? Good for you. Good for you. I love hearing that kind of <laughs> stuff, man. Uh, let's see. Uh, hey, how long are you going to stay in L.A.? Everybody's moving out of L.A. A lot of people in Vegas. We'd welcome a Greg D'Angelo here in Vegas. Ever planning on leaving uh, that, that crazy state of L.A. Or, uh, or I should say California? Or are you stuck yes. there? Yes. When my son graduates high school, I'm going to pull up to graduation in a U-Haul, so I'll be ready to go. <laughs> Speaking of cars, a U-Haul is not something you drive. You drive some exotic cars or have an exotic car or have a sort of an exotic car fetish. What, what do you drive? What's your go-to car? What do you have? Oh, I'm, I'm really lucky. I have a couple of really cool cars that uh, I take out and drive really early on Sunday mornings with uh, my really cool car friends. And... Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a couple of really nice things. Right on. They're, they're on my Instagram. You can look at my Instagram for uh, 
for the Astons and the Ferraris and the McLarens and all that stuff. Kick ass. Greg D'Angelo, I, I feel like we peeled some onions today and we got to the bottom of some things in a very respectful informative way and i appreciate you spending as much time as you did with me this was an honor and a pleasure for greg d'angelo the uh og classic drummer of white lion and many other bands on this that and the other radio show dirty radio dead fm channel 2 dirty radio classics what are your post-game thoughts here are you good you happy i'm happy troy thank you for including me and uh, considering me and taking the time i really appreciate it and um, wish you nothing but the best, buddy. And I look forward to seeing you in the not-too-distant future. I appreciate that, man. You have a good one. Happy holidays. Happy birthday on the 19th. And, uh, and oh, one other thing that we have in common, if you look up, because uh, I, I looked up your, you know, you look up your name, just Greg D'Angelo, and then there's the weird sites that say Greg D'Angelo Net Worth. And then, well, I was like, oh, so it's $6 million, by the way. I'm not sure if your family knows about it, but you're worth $6 million. I looked up my name, and I'm worth $6 million too, apparently. I just don't know where it is. But anyway, you and I have something else in common. Well, let's go play some craps. I'm in. All right, bro. You take care. Happy holidays. Happy birthday. And thanks again, dude. It was awesome. All right, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Cheers. All right, Greg D'Angelo from White Lion and uh, Stephen Piercy's band and the uh, legends of classic rock. And let's get the uh, the website there for that. I, I will actually bring that up after. I, I, I'm just like uh, floored. I'm floored to talk to him. I had such a great time uh, rapping with him. And uh, let's let's play something cool because we, we played a lot of stuff underneath, but... Uh, We'll do, hey, how about just, just rate our love, all right? Rate our love from the almighty Greg D'Angelo. And, uh, man, uh, oh, Anthrax, there you go, another band. It was super awesome to have uh, Greg on the show. And I, I feel like I was a little concerned that maybe he was going to, because in some other interviews, they didn't really press it, but I feel like he he felt okay to talk to me. And we, we talked about some things. We figured it out. And I am uh, super, super, super stoked about that. So, Greg D'Angelo, I raise a tall, natty light to you, my friend. Happy birthday, happy holidays, and uh, we'll be back with more this, that, and the other radio show on DirtyRadio.fm, Channel 2, Dirty Radio Classics. What's up? Hey, it's Greg D'Angelo, and you're listening to This, That, and The Other on Dirty Radio Classic. Classic Rock is back! The boys are back in town! Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Classic Rock on Dirty Radio Classic. (laughs) 